Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. I want to lead off this hour with a couple of international headlines that are actually a follow-on to stories we have discussed here um, on prior occasions. Uh, The United States is removing Sudan from the terrorism list. This actually frees up the possibility of real American aid, uh, significant American aid flowing into Sudan. President Trump says that Sudan is going to be removed from the list of state sponsors of of terrorism, a move that would open the door um, for this beleaguered African country to uh, get international loans and aid that will be absolutely essential to uh, reviving its decimated economy um, and hopefully uh, has, uh, you know, assisted in transitioning to um, real democracy. So uh, the decision is contingent on Sudan following through on its agreement to pay $335 million to U.S. terror victims and their families. And this decision came after the Treasury Secretary uh, was in Bahrain to submit um, Bahrain's um, relationship uh, with Israel. And this is really what this, you know, ultimately is all about. Sudan would like to enter into a positive relationship with Israel as well. In order to do that, they need to be removed from the U.S., list of state sponsors of terror. This is a step in that direction. This is how foreign policy um, is done. It's messy. Much of it's behind the scenes. It takes a long time. It has lots of moving parts. But just keep that in mind as you are hearing um, conversations about U.S. foreign policy and, um, you know, and how effective certain people are in terms of uh, making things happen around the globe. All right. Uh, And then we have been talking about the situation in uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan, I think it's important to um, recognize there has been new shelling um, in the region. Uh, and we had a conversation with Luke Moon about it on Friday morning. On Saturday, uh, there was an attempt to reestablish the ceasefire. But the uh, I think that latest truce is now, um, well, fighting has resumed. So that did not hold. Um, And then finally, uh, I want to at least tee up a conversation among us about QAnon. Uh, I found out over the weekend that there are a fair number of people who actually don't know what it is uh, or who it is or what it is about. And so I just want to tee that up with you. Uh, The president was asked a question. uh, President Trump was asked a question about QAnon during his uh, town hall on NBC last week. And... um, you know, and he said he didn't know much about them. I, I discovered over the weekend that there are a fair number of people who don't know much about them. And there are a fair number of people who know a lot about uh, QAnon and are participating in it. And so I just want to tee that up um, for us as a conversation that we need to be having going forward. 
uh, I will be sure that I find somebody that we can talk with about that particular subject matter area. And if you're one of those people that doesn't know anything about it, I guess I want to say huh, you're not alone. All right. Justin Gibney is waiting in the wings right now. Uh, we talk to Justin from time to time from the AND campaign. And he's back. We're going to talk about a number of topics and issues. We're going to lead off with why was it such a bad thing for Dianne Feinstein to hug it out with Lindsey Graham uh, after the confirmation hearings of Amy Coney Barrett? We'll be right back. Joining me again today, Justin Gibney from the AND Campaign. Uh, that's the best one-stop shopping place to find him online, the AND Campaign. Justin, welcome back. Hey, Carmen. How's it going? Glad to be back. Well, uh, it's going. Uh, I probably am living in the same um, exhausted angst as everyone else, but it's going. Good to hear. <laughs> okay. So, uh, Diane Feinstein, Senator Diane Feinstein and Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, shared a mutually respectful exchange at the conclusion of the Senate Judiciary Committee's examination of Amy Coney Barrett, and then they hugged one another. One of the responses to that has been um, that there has been a withdrawal of support from abortion advocates in particular, uh, abortion rights groups, um, in relationship to Diane Feinstein. So can you just talk with us a little bit about what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, in, in my opinion, it's it's just pure tribalism, right? It's the idea that in order to advocate for something passionately, in a, in order to show your determination, you have to paint the other side or folks or your political opponent as a pure demon. To hug them, to speak uh, kindly to them, is to suggest that they're redeemable. And the way that our politics work today. The way that many of our advocates on on both sides address one another is in a way that um, suggests that the other side is pure evil, and to and to do anything that that uh, compromises that is to take away from the cause. Now, obviously, I disagree with with that assessment, but that's really the way that we treat one another, and it's not just folks on the you know progressive left that do that. Unfortunately, sometimes it's Christians uh, that don't want anyone to treat. Uh, folks on the other side uh, with dignity, uh, with civility. And uh, I I just don't think that biblically that's defensible. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. So I appreciate you sharing your perspective uh, perspective on that. Um, Okay, I am going to uh, allow you to be the, uh, for a moment here, the debate moderator. You are moderating the next debate between uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. What are three questions you are going to ask? It's, it's just an open debate or, or about – It's wide open, man. It's wide okay. open. You can ask – you are the moderator, and there's no rules, and you can ask three questions. Yeah, I think my first question uh, for both candidates would be what will be your policy and how will you show compassion towards uh, immigrants? Um, and so I want to hear both sides talk about how they would try to get comprehensive immigration reform through and, and how that policy would be – would ensure that uh, folks are treated compassionately while understanding that we do have to have a border and the border does have to be protected. Uh, Next, I would ask uh, specifically to Joe Biden, um, 
how will you protect religious freedom? Uh, how will you make sure that people of faith, not just Christians, uh, inst- faith-based institutions are protected uh, from what really is, you know, can be seen as um, some some real threats? Uh, I would want to hear that. I would want to hear what he'd have to say about that. And then lastly, I'd probably ask them about uh, racial justice. Um, given the history of this country, uh, what needs to be done to ensure uh, that we level the playing field as much as possible for communities who have traditionally been uh, discriminated against and um, not given opportunities like everyone else? And then, Justin, um, let's focus in on that last question. Um I want you to advise the winning candidate. I don't care who. It's irrelevant that we suss out who that's going to be. You advise the winning candidate on the correct answer, how to give a good answer to that final question uh, about racial justice. Yeah, I would, you know, what I would advise them to do is is really focus on uh, practical ways to provide opportunity. And one of the first places to start when you're talking about providing opportunity is in education, uh, early education uh, and making sure that that kids in low income communities not only can go to school with, with something in their bellies, but are actually getting have an opportunity to get an education that can move them forward. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we have a huge gap between the kind of the haves and the have nots, and it's a gap that is growing. And so we have to take every effort to be deliberate about uh, shrinking that gap, not through means of kind of class warfare, uh, but but seriously being, um, you know, having precise policies that speak to the needs of, of those in need. I would also talk about housing and how housing plays a huge part in the stability of families. Um, and then you have to talk about criminal justice. Um, and I think they've, you know, I, I do give the Trump administration credit for that. I think they've taken a good first step uh, when it comes to criminal justice. But those are th- three areas that you want to have precise, uh, clear policy. And I want to know that it's going to be something that's uh, a priority, not just something that we say and, and move on. Okay, I want to talk about priorities when we come back. I am going to ask Justin Gibbity to imagine uh, that the Dems have won the presidency, uh, the Senate, and they have held the House. And I'm going to ask him to describe what he expects to happen in terms of an agenda and maybe the order of it. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continue my conversation with Justin Gibney from the AND campaign. Um, so, Justin, I want you to imagine for a moment that Democrats uh, are successful in their bid for the presidency and that they also flip the Senate and hold the House. What do you expect to um, see happen in terms of uh, the agenda? Not like, you know, comprehensive eternal agenda, but like what do you expect them to get after pretty much right away? Yeah, if the Democrats were to win, uh, there are a few things that I, I would expect. And one of the big questions, honestly, Carmen, is are they going to prioritize some of these elite cultural issues, um, meaning abortion um, and LGBTQ uh, issues? Are, are they going to prioritize those issues like the Equality Act or are they going to prioritize um some of these disparity issues that we talked about. So we can talk about healthcare and education and uh, the economy. Uh, I think very quickly, though, they're going to have to tend to the economy. I just for from a practical perspective. And so I think that you'll see some 
some ser- some real economic uh, moves, whether it's kind of an- another stimulus or something like that. The Democrats have been trying to push some of that st- stuff through uh, and and have gotten resistance. And I think if they control all three branches, that's something that they will do. Uh, I think pretty pretty quickly. You also have a, a reversal just of the a lot of the regulations that the administration pushed through. Um, so that's one of the things, you know, when it comes to kind of executive orders, I think pretty quickly you're going to see a reversal on some of the, you know, immigration uh, executive orders. You're going to see a reversal on some of the foreign policy decisions, at least the ones that they can do from the executive office. And, you know, they'll do what they need to do in Congress as well. Something that Christians should, I think, be concerned about is Joe Biden has said that he's going to make the Equality Act uh, one of his uh, priorities. I don't know that that happens immediately in the first year, but I do think it's something that is going to be on the table pretty quickly. And it's something that Christians should be uh, concerned about, uh, especially Christians that are in the Democratic Party that will have a say uh, as to whether that, that moves forward or not. And that gets to why you wanted to ask Joe Biden a specific or particular question about how he would protect religious freedom and faith-based institutions, because that's the that's the conversation on balance. There is the conversation with the Equality Act. Exactly. That that's yeah. a huge conversation. That that's a, a, a really big threat to Christian colleges, Christian hospitals, and so on. Uh, it's something that hasn't really been vetted by the public. Not even folks in the Democratic Party. It's kind of one of those things that uh, a couple special interest groups and kind of the professional class has decided for themselves and are pushing on everyone else. Um, all right. And um, so I have on my list, uh, OK, single payer health care, free college, reversal of Trump executive orders. Um, I had immigration on there uh, and then New Green Deal. But you didn't really surface any of those other than the reversal of the executive orders. So you don't really have a particular expectation that some of the things that we actually hear pretty frequently on the campaign trail will be prioritized in terms of uh, of a Biden administration that also has the support of both houses of Congress? Well, yeah, I mean, the things that you named, most of those things are um, Bernie. Those are Bernie Sanders things. Uh, actually, but that's Biden... what I feel like I hear him saying when or I hear him being asked about. So you don't really. So I, this is my question. I observe a push or pull from the left of the Democratic Party. It seems kind of loud, the 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 AOC crowd and maybe the Bernie Sanders crowd. Yes. Um, but you are not hearing or feeling or seeing that same maybe push pull from the left. Oh, yeah, there'll certainly be a push pull. I just don't think that push pull. I don't think it'll happen immediately. Um, and, I, you know, unless the Democrats want to immediately lose the House, you know, in two years, I don't know that that would be advisable. And so I don't I don't think a Biden administration is going to prioritize the new D- Green Deal and free school. I mean, that's just not what he ran on. And the, yeah. and the fact of the matter is, when he wins South Carolina, when he wins the South, it wasn't running on those issues in a way that Bernie was winning on those run, running on those issues. And he lost. So I think. The clear mandate was not for those particular issues. Um, So let's talk about um, how in the days left we could still support a healthy election. And um, and then let's also talk about how we can all support a healthy post-election environment, particularly via our own social media. 
Yeah, that's good. Um, the first thing we need to do is pray. Look, mm -hmm. uh, we, we don't know what's going to happen in this election, but we know it's going to be ugly. Uh, what we can do is just reach out to people. You know, the Ann campaign sent out five ways that uh, Christians can can support a healthy election, whether it is giving water to people at line, in line for, you know, um, whether it's creating a plan and, and, and helping people get to the polls. Uh, we want to make sure that people feel like their voice has been heard. And so there are things and you can go on our social media page to get all five of those things. But there are things Christians can do to make sure it's a, a healthy uh, environment and that people aren't kind of being threatened or anything like that. We can be poll workers. There's a lot of ways uh, to help out. And I think Christians should pursue those. As far as what happens afterwards, you know, I'm, you know, because it's going to be ugly, because it could take weeks or longer to to figure out what the results are. We want Christians, whether they win or lose, to remain sober, uh, not to get too caught up in the triumphalism or the discouragement of the moment, but to be peacemakers. And so the prayer and action justice uh, initiative is really going to be giving Christians on ramps to get involved, to make change that are not partisan ways, because we're going to need healing within the body of Christ after this election, because you have a, a good number of Christians on both sides. One of them is going to be very upset. And so I think before we go into that situation, Christians need to be committed to being peacemakers. And that doesn't mean pacifism. That doesn't mean ignoring the issues. It means coming together to work for justice and moral order in a way that we haven't before, because it's bigger than this one election. And if we let, allow this to further tear the church apart, then we're, we're in a bad space. Uh, one additional thought, um, Justin, I have been encouraging people who are really exercised about what's going on nationally. I have just asked them, what's going on locally? Like, what's going on in your own local election? Like, who's what's on the ballot in your own? People don't even know. They don't even know. And, I mean, and so um, my, one of my encouragements has been, you know, get get focused where you actually can make some substantive difference um, by actually supporting things locally that matter to you and to others. Um, and so uh, I think that when we when we simply uh, take in and process and then regurgitate national concerns or issues, and we do so pretty much only on social media, um, we're not actually engaged in uh, the political process in any meaningful way. And so the most meaningful place that you can engage is locally. And so I just want to encourage people um, to do that. And I like the ideas about, you know, going to your local polling place and passing out water or offering people transportation to and from and serving as a poll worker. Those are local ways that you can serve. And there's probably other local ways as well. Um, you know, if you want to impact education right where you live, find out how you can serve local schools and your local um, school board, right? Or even serve on your local school board, like all kinds of ways to get engaged. You know, that's we, you know, we're trying to emphasize that I mean, the local is so important because a lot of times the local isn't partisan. So even with the prayer and justice, uh, prayer and action justice initiative, we are focusing on local issues where we can make some change and bring the the church together without doing it from a partisan frame. Exactly. So you can find all of that at andcampaign.org. Does it not have a the in it? Is it just and campaign? Theandcampaign.com. Yes. And campaign. Yep. Just and. Yeah. All right. And no the and campaign. It's technically the and campaign, but you just find it at and campaign. I love it. Justin Gibney, thank you so much. As always, we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Carmen. Take care. All right. We'll be right back.
We're going to have Alicia Childers here on the program on the 19th of November to talk about her book, Another Gospel. So appreciate uh, John Stone Street's comments about it there on Breakpoint. So some nearly 2 million Americans are going to uh, hear a doctor say three words by the end of 2020 um, that are three of the most feared words anybody could ever hear. You have cancer. So just in this year, 2020, 1.8 million Americans are going to hear a doctor say you have cancer. And although no longer as life-threatening as those three words once were, they are life-altering. And uh, it puts you into a club that nobody ever wants to join. It alters not only your life, but the life of everyone around you. And it probably is, it probably leads the list of prayer concerns that are raised by uh, listeners when we, you know, invite people to share their prayer concerns with us here at Faith Radio. Um, my mom has cancer. My son has cancer. My brother has cancer. My child has cancer. My cousin has cancer. My neighbor has cancer. My friend has cancer. I have cancer. Families, parents, spouses, children, siblings, coworkers, neighbors, friends are all affected when the diagnosis is cancer. So what kind of um, devotional support do we have in the midst of that? Well, next up, Deborah Barr. She's an author. She's a speaker. She's a health educator. And she has a passion for encouraging people um, to engage with God in some of the most difficult experiences of life. And so she's going to talk with us today about her new devotional book, Strength for the Cancer Journey. And yes, I have copies to give away. We'll be right back. This is Max Locato. Jesus says to us what he said to the disciples on the stormy sea. It is I. Don't be afraid. John 6 and verse 20. The literal translation of what Jesus said is, I am. Don't be afraid. I am. That's God's name. When we wonder if God is coming, he answers with his name. I am. When we wonder if he is able, he declares, I am. When we see nothing but darkness, feel nothing but doubt, and wonder if God is near or aware, the welcome answer from Jesus is this, I am. Pause for a moment and let him tell you his name. Your greatest need is his presence. Yes, you want this storm to pass. Yes, you want the winds to still. But yes, 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 you want to know and need to know and must know the great I am is near. Remember, friends, you are never alone. This is Max Locato. conversation about cancer. The book is Strength for the Cancer Journey, 30 Days of Inspiration, Encouragement, and Comfort. Deborah Barr, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Good morning. Absolutely. So I want to um, I want to give you a couple of uh, sentences of context. Um, and uh, so I will never forget the night that my sister called in December of 2011 and said the three words, Larry has leukemia. Um, it was just three days after Christmas. He was seven years old, and it was a journey. It was excruciating. Um, he is now a long-term survivor. He just got his driver's license. He plays right tackle on his high school JV football team. He is a happy, uh, you know, kid. But I can t- attest to a fact that cancer is a journey. It's not just the journey for the person who has the diagnosis. It's not just a journey for the immediate family. 
it's a brutal journey for everyone, and it should not be faced alone. That is what this book feels like it becomes, a companion for the very real journey, strength for the cancer journey. Deborah, um, share with us your inspiration behind writing it. Um, well, let me first say that your assessment that it's not just a journey for the patient, but for the whole family, everybody who's connected, you are exactly right. Um, the reason I wrote the book, um, cancer's been on my personal radar a long time because both of my parents have had cancer. Uh, my father had bladder cancer. My mom had colon cancer. But about two years ago, cancer came back on my radar big time when somebody I'm very close to at this point in my life developed cancer. And I just have a passion for encouraging people to engage deeply with God during their hard times. And I really think this book grew out of a desire to help people do that because I was watching somebody do that right before my very eyes. So since I personally have never had cancer, um, what I did was kind of recruit a panel of experts, quote unquote, uh, people that I knew or people who were friends of mine, friends of friends who had cancer, um, ended up with eight people and interviewed them because I can talk about cancer, you know, from the stadium, you know, from the stadium seat, but they're on the journey and they can speak from personal experience. So I interviewed them all and compiled their stories with scripture. And um, it came out, I think, to be something that met my goal, which was to encourage people to engage deeply with God on this journey. And, and you're right, it is a journey. So the book is Strength for the Cancer Journey, 30 Days of Inspiration, Encouragement, and Comfort. I do have complimentary copies uh, here in studio to give away. If you'd like to enter the drawing to receive one of those, just text the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. Just the word BOOK, nothing else, to 877-933-2484. Deborah, there are people listening who may be very, very familiar uh, with Grace for the Unexpected Journey that you wrote for Dementia Caregivers. Um, a few years ago. And so uh, I want to tee that up, remind people of that as well. Um, one of the things that you say in, in Strength for the Cancer Journey, or you'll remind us of, is that um, for a lot of people, for a number of people anyway, cancer is a, quote, spiritual turning point. Uh, God really does get our full attention um, in ways that maybe we had been distracted by a myriad of other things. Talk with us a, a little bit about the role of faith in the cancer journey. Do Christians experience the cancer journey differently than non-believers? Um, in a word, I would say yes, if that is their focus. Um, and what I mean by that is that cancer is a turning point, I think, for both the Christ follower and the unbeliever. For the Christ follower, it is kind of a decision of, am I going to go forward here in my own strength, or am I going to go forward in the strength that only God supplies? And so for a lot of people, this is the point where they go from a nominal faith 
to a wholehearted faith because now there's something going on that's way bigger than anything they've ever faced before. And their faith is kind of um, put to the test. And and for the unbeliever, it, it can also be a turning point because they realize for the first time that, yeah, this is bigger than me and I do need God. You know, I do need salvation. I do need him to carry me. And it's um, a crisis of faith, but it can have a spectacularly wonderful outcome for anyone who will really turn and surrender, you know, the future to the, to, to God. Um, one of the, the guys that I interviewed and he's got a rare kind of cancer, it's ocular melanoma, which is melanoma in the eye. Um, almost always fatal eventually. Um, his, his assessment was, and this is a quote, he said, I don't think anyone is going to get cancer and remain the same. Someone is either going to really turn from God or run to God. It's one of those two things. So I think the people who run from God are kind of just mad about the cancer. How could you do this to me, God? And the people who run to God are the people who bow their hearts and their their knees, you know, and allow him to walk with them through the cancer, just as Max, I guess it was Max Lucado who just said, you know, the whole focus on I am, you know, the, the eternal present presence of God. Hmm. So I'm talking with Deborah Barr. We're talking about uh, her new book, Strength for the Cancer Journey, 30 Days of Inspiration, Encouragement, and Comfort. Uh, if you are on the cancer journey and you would like a very godly companion for the trip, this book is uh, it makes an excellent one. And we have some copies. Moody has graciously uh, sent us some copies that we, in turn, can pass along to you. So just text the word BOOK to 877-933-2484. Deborah Barr and I will be right back. Continuing my conversation with author Deborah Barr. Deborah Barr, we're talking about her new book, Strength for the Cancer Cancer Journey. Wow, I'm a little tongue-tied this morning, which is unusual. Um, Deborah, um, thank you again for joining us. And let me just remind our listeners, I do have complimentary copies of the book. If you would like to enter the drawing, just just text the word book to 877-933-2484. You have a chapter on asking for help, and you describe it as the hardest part why is it so hard for us to not only accept help from others, but ask for help? I, there is no question this was the hardest part for my sister and brother-in-law. No question about it. Uh, the hardest part was asking for help. You know, this surprised me. Um, but that's, again, why I had a panel of experts, uh, people walk in the journey who could tell me this this chapter I chose that title because of um, the fact that that's what one of the people I interviewed told me. This was the youngest person I interviewed. She has Hodgkin's lymphoma. And she said, you know, despite everything she'd been through, you know, the stem cell transplant, the hair loss, you know, being separated from her newborn baby, 
all these things. She said the hardest part was accepting help. And that more or less astonished me. But she said the reason for her is because she doesn't like to inconvenience other people. And this came up again when I interviewed uh, a man who has bladder cancer. And he again said the hardest part is accepting help. But for him, he said, he admitted, the reason is pride. Um, mm-hmm. Because we're so independent, we're so self-sufficient. Even when we have cancer, we don't want to admit that we need help. But he went on to point out that dethroning ourselves, um, becoming humble before God rather than prideful is one of God's goals for us anyway. And so the cancer just becomes a way to actually put that into practice. And, you know, what I realized in talking with these two people and giving it some real sincere thought is that when, when a person with cancer will do that, when they will humble themselves and ask for help and accept help if it's offered, what happens is really a pretty neat thing because if they say yes and are open to help, other people get to use their spiritual gifts to help. Other people get to use their God-given resources um, in her, in the one case um, of the young lady, um, her coworkers stepped up to pay some of her insurance bills and practical gifts, you know, like mowing the lawn for you or driving you to your radiation appointments. Um, those things can't happen if the door is shut by pride. But when a person is humble enough to receive it, everybody gets blessed. So I saw this as a really key thing. So, um, Deborah, I uh, I made some notes in relationship to this particular uh, one on um, in terms of how we help. Those of us who are not in the immediate crisis of being the patient or being the primary caregiver of the patient. So we are one step away. We are one step removed from being the primary person. So we are in a position of being able to help. And I made some notes. And um, uh, and this falls into the don't ask what you can do because they don't know. Like they sincerely, they don't know. They're so, they're, it's all immediate. It's all crisis. Instead, my encouragement is to see what needs to be done and just do it. So mowing the grass was on my list watering the plants, sorting the mail, walking the dog, cleaning the bathroom. I mean, if you're in the bathroom and you're saying to yourself, it needs to be cleaned, clean it. Okay. <laughs> Restock the pantry, fill up their car with gas. Um, uh, if you are a coworker, give them your PTO days um, so that they can take time off to be with their person. Um, I mean, there's just so many things that we can do, but we actually just have to do them. Um, and the other the other part, and this is a conversation that I had with my sister along the way in terms of the hardest part, and that's that, you know, accepting the help from others. Um, it was, you know, she really felt paralyzed to answer the question, what can we do? What can I do? What can I do? What can I do? That became paralyzing. And so being able to just say to people, even from 2,000 miles away, because I was not right, you know, there on the scene, me being able to come up with 
ideas for the other people who were in immediate proximity and could actually physically go do something became a became a role that I could have even from far away that helped her not have to answer the question and helped other people actually get to do something. And so I just I just encourage everybody to um, play the role that you can play near or far. Um, and maybe um, maybe the other conversation that we should have or could have would be sort of the role the role that we play um, as protector or advocate or just talk a little bit about that. How how do the how can those of us who are you know one step away from being the patient? What is the right or most righteous sort of role to play? Um, I think you hit on it pretty well. Um, the only PS I would add is sometimes um, the help doesn't occur because we accidentally block it in the mm. way we communicate our willingness to help. Like, for example, um, it's really easy to say something like, well, just call me if you need anything. But that's that's to your point, um, kind of paralyzing. And it's a better approach to just say something specific like, I'd like to pay a bill for you this month. Will you let me? Or mm. um, I'd like to line up people to drive you to your radiation appointments. Would you please give me your appointment schedule? And you just kind of take it out of their hands. Um, of course, you don't want to, you know, tra- trample over their boundaries if they really, really, really don't want the help for some particular reason that they may not want to share with you. I think we should be respectful. But I think your your point is great. But apart from that, I would say um, to be a protector rather than a promoter. And what I mean by that is I got I got this idea from actually a cancer dietitian that I know, and she writes a blog. And in her blog, she talked about this idea related to food, and I kind of used it as a springboard for something else. So, so here's the root of it. She said in her blog, um, protector foods are the ones that give your body the nourishment it needs to function at its best and to fight the cancer. Promoter foods do the opposite. They promote cancer. They break down the body's ability to protect itself from disease. So people can either be protectors or promoters, um, depending on how we interact with people. Um, We could be people who protect in that we empower and encourage, or we can be promoters that flood their mind with negativity and fear. And to the patient, what I have to say is sometimes you have to set a boundary because there will be people who will project negativity and fear and tell you horrible stories of people they knew who didn't fare well, who had your type of cancer or your type of treatment. And those things don't empower and encourage us, you know, if you're fighting cancer. So sometimes you have to put a limit on what and who um, you connect with. And media can do the same thing. You know, in the Internet, if you spend too much time. <laughs> yeah, don't, Google don't Google it. Don't Google it. 
um, the, but the type of movies you watch, you know, all, all kinds of media, the things you read, um, both media and people can either be protectors or promoters. And for the person with cancer, I just want to say it is okay for you to set a boundary and to put a limit on time spent with people who um, are not really that encouraging or supportive. So one of my roles, I think you'll like this, Deborah, <clears throat> was to graciously move people back. So um, so there were like, you know, people who wanted to come into the hospital. Nope, you're going to have to move them back. Uh, or people who wanted to come into the house. Nope. You're going to have to move them back. So some of it, your role might actually, you know, you, you, you might just ask your sister, your mom, your friend, whoever it is that is either the patient or the primary caregiver of the patient. Like, what, what do you need in terms of a line of defense? And who do you sort of need me to offend? Because who cares who I offend, right? I mean, I, they'll, they'll get to get over it. So, um, so there you go. Some just some great, uh, very practical ideas. Deborah Barr, you and I could go on all day long. I really would love for you to come back and talk about the book that you wrote for the caregivers of um, of people with dementia, Grace for the Unexpected Journey. Would you do that if we line that oh, up with you? Absolutely would love yeah, to do that. Because we have a lot of listeners who are dealing with that as well as caregivers. All right. Deborah Barr is the author of the book. Today is Strength for the Cancer Journey. I've got books to give away, 877-933-2484. Just text the word book. Deborah, thank you so much. You're so very welcome. Thank you. Yeah, we'll be right back to close it up. up. Oh, Paul says I'm closing it up now because I'm completely out of time. So, uh, Paul, how close am I since I don't have a time? Five seconds. Oh, have a great day. God bless. God bless. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.